Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. Hotels, massages, threats. More and more women are coming forward with their stories of harassment, assault, and worse by Harvey Weinstein. And we hear one of those stories. It's Wednesday, October 11th. Jody Kanner, thank you for coming back. It's great to be back with you. The last time you were here, you told us about a pattern of sexual harassment allegations that you discovered against Harvey Weinstein, the Hollywood producer. What have you learned since then? So the first story had a really positive effect journalistically, which is that people became more willing to speak. Mm -hmm. And, you know, all summer I have been telling my sources the dynamic is going to reverse. Hmm. If these allegations are true, if these allegations continue to pile up, all of the sort of fear that you've experienced over the years, you know, the feeling that these things could not be talked about, if these allegations— are what we think they are, then you are going to hear a lot more people coming forward. And so essentially, that's what happened. Uh, We began to see in different news outlets, uh, people were coming out of the woodwork and telling Harvey Weinstein stories. The New Yorker published a really powerful article documenting assault allegations in addition to Mm -hmm. some very disturbing stories of sexual harassment. And then today, we published a story describing specifically the casting couch allegations in terms of how he treated actresses. Is this, Jody, an instance where women who were scared to tell their story now feel like it's safer to do that? That's what they've told us. The name people mention again and again to me is Ashley Judd. Mm. For some of the women who we've spoken to in the past couple of days, the fact that such a major Hollywood star was willing to come forward in the newspaper and describe her experience was really powerful for them. And then what was even more powerful is that because, at least according to the stories we've heard, Weinstein used the same techniques and the same manipulation again and again. Sometimes when I've been doing interviews in the last couple of days, women have said to me, oh, just like in the Ashley Judd story, Hmm. he da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So that's become like a real lodestar for them. Can you describe that system to us that Ashley Judd described and that now many other women are describing? Give us a textbook version of how this goes. Here's the thing about listening to actresses tell the Harvey Weinstein harassment stories. Mm -hmm. It's like watching the same movie again and again and again. It appears to have been 
a system. It was facilitated by so many people, executives, very low-level assistants who had to do some of the dirty work. There were a lot of logistics involved. In every case that we documented, according to the women, Weinstein asked to meet with them for a work reason. Mm -hmm. And in some of the stories we've heard, what the women describe is a very explicit work for sex, quid pro quo. Mm. Other women say that just as Weinstein put the moves on, he essentially name-dropped he said, look at what I've done for this one or that one, mm -hmm. or implied, if you want to succeed in this business, this is what you have to do. Um, if you get intimate with me, I'll be able to make you a big star like such and such. Wow. Jody, some of the biggest names in Hollywood have come forward through your reporting. But what's interesting is that they're describing a pattern that you've just outlined that happened to them when they weren't the biggest names in Hollywood. Who, who are some of those people and where were they in their careers? And the Oscar goes to Gwyneth Paltrow. Shakespeare in love. Okay, so probably like you and like a lot of people, you know, I had watched Gwyneth Paltrow's career. Gwyneth Paltrow has appeared in nearly 20 films, including Emma and Sliding Doors. This is her first Academy Award. Mm -hmm. I remember her winning Best Actress for Shakespeare in Love. And it always seemed like she was so close to Harvey Weinstein. And in fact, she had this kind of nickname called the First Lady of Miramax. I would like to thank Harvey Weinstein and everybody at Miramax Films for their undying support of me. So I guess I found it particularly shocking when Gwyneth started to tell me the story about Weinstein's unwanted advances on her. The way it goes is basically this. She was signed up to do Emma, the Jane Austen adaptation, and one other movie. She was very kind young. Of epic period piece. And it was pretty clear that, you know, these were parts that could take her from mm -hmm. being an actress to being a star. Um, and in fact, they did. That's what they did for her in the end. But what very few people knew was that when she was signed up, but before the movies were shot, she says he invited her to the Peninsula Hotel in L.A., which is like a real motif mm -hmm. in our stories. A, a lot of the harassment allegation stories take place there. And he invited her in for a meeting that seemed normal at first. It especially seemed normal because the meeting had been set up through her agent. So she really had no reason to think that there was going to be anything unusual about walking into this hotel suite. She had experienced him as, you know, a kind of like benevolent mentor figure. She said, you know, sort of like Uncle Harvey. Um, so at the end of the meeting, he actually placed his hands on her and he invited her into the bedroom for mm. massages. And by the way, she was dating Brad Pitt, which the entire world knew. Including presumably Harvey Weinstein. Including presumably Harvey Weinstein. So she says no immediately. She leaves. She's really shaken. She tells Pitt immediately. And shortly thereafter, Gwyneth and Brad run into Harvey at a theater premiere. And Pitt really confronted Harvey. He explicitly told him, if you ever touch my girlfriend again, there is going to be a really big problem. Do we know what, her, what Weinstein said in response? Yes. So what Gwyneth says is that Harvey's response was to threaten her, hmm. that he called her. She was living in downtown New York. She remembers the call very well. And he berated her for having told anybody about this. And her response was... Uh, 
I told my boyfriend, like, when this kind of thing happens to you, you tell your boyfriend that's what you do. And then she said he threatened her and he said, you know, something to the effect of, she didn't remember the exact word, something to the effect of you're going to ruin everything. And remember, I just want to pause here and remember. Yeah, the circumstances she, of her career. At this she moment. had work on the line and her quote to me was, I was expected to keep the secret. You know, so all of these years go on and she becomes even more successful and she wins this best actress picture. And in another Weinstein production. In another Weinstein production. And she felt like in public, you know, she had to do her job. She kind of plays the glowing star to, you know, his powerful producer. This is really Harvey Weinstein at the very peak of his powers. I want to talk about how clear it's becoming that to people inside the entertainment industry – Weinstein's behavior, Jody, was an open secret. It sounds like another theme in these stories was that women had already heard about it from other women or continued to hear about it in Hollywood. So the question is really, who knew about it beforehand and did they do anything? And without pointing any specific fingers, I want to read you something. Okay. So there's nothing more central to the film industry than the Oscars, right? Good morning. Uh, I'm Seth MacFarlane, the host of the Oscars. This is a joke uh, that was made at the Oscar announcements, we'll a very, very public event. The 2012 nominees for Best Performance by an Actress in a Supporting Role are... He's announcing a bunch Sally of female Jean acting Jean nominees, Jean. and he says... Congratulations, you five ladies no longer have to pretend to be attracted to Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> animated feature film. The nominees are... If anybody now or in coming days in Hollywood tells you that they did not know or suspect mm. that there was a problem here, look back in that, at that joke and say, then why was the guy who was hosting the Oscar nominations joking openly about it? We all seem to be going back in pop culture now and finding moments where a joke was made in a show like 30 Rock. Oh, please. I'm not afraid of anyone in show business. I turned down intercourse with Harvey Weinstein on no less than three occasions out of five. And when you start to piece these cultural moments together, it's startling how frequently someone seemed to make a public pronouncement, slyly, indirectly, but make a pronouncement that they suspected that Harvey Weinstein was doing bad things to women. I have to tell you, this is why we wanted to report this story, Michael. I mean, how could something be so strangely public and yet never be documented, never be proven? Are you surprised that so many more women and so many more stories have come forward since you started? I mean, when you started this reporting, did you expect this cascade of stories to be coming out? Well, so I'm asking the same question that I did at the start of the reporting, but in a completely different way, which is, what is the size and scope of this thing? How many people were affected? Mm -hmm. You know, all of us sat there and watched these films and watched the Oscars. But what was really going on behind the scenes? And you're also, I suppose, asking how many people knew. How many people knew? The Times is reporting that last Thursday, after the investigation was first published, Harvey Weinstein sent an email to top agents and studio executives saying he was desperate for help and imploring them to ask the board of the Weinstein Company not to fire him. On Tuesday, one of the recipients of the email, Jeffrey Katzenberg, the former chairman of Disney and CEO of DreamWorks, made public the response he'd sent Weinstein, his longtime friend. Hey, Harvey, it started. 
You stated in your email that, quote, a lot of the allegations are false, as you know. Well, actually, I don't know. It seems to me we are now down to degrees of horrible. We'll be right back. This podcast is supported by Facebook. It's been 25 years since lawmakers passed comprehensive internet regulations. But the internet has changed a lot since then. And it's time for an update. That's why Facebook supports updated internet regulations to set clear guidelines for addressing today's toughest challenges, like protecting privacy, fighting misinformation, reforming Section 230, and more. See their progress on key issues and what's next at about.fb.com slash regulations. I was 23, uh, 23 years old. I had just gotten out of acting school and I'd gotten a great agent, I thought, and was happy going on auditions and taking meetings. And I met with lots of different studios Mm. to have generals and casting directors. And, you know, it was pretty much my first year of of auditioning in New York City. Catherine Kendall is one of the women to come forward this past week. And um, I met with Miramax and I met Harvey and it was at the, the Miramax office. He gave me a couple scripts to look at. One of them was, I remember, Beautiful Girls. And he was really kind to me in the office and was in front of everyone, sort of said, said, welcome to the Miramax family. I thought, all right, great, you know. So it was a big deal to be connected with Miramax at all, it sounds like. I thought so, yeah, absolutely. And what did you know about Harvey Weinstein at the time? I knew that he had produced a movie, Cinema Paradiso. that was one of my favorite movies. It's one of my favorite movies too. Is it? Oh, I loved it. And I think that was one of the reasons that I felt like trusting with him. Like how could someone It's such a tender, it's such a tender story. It's so tender. Exactly. You know, he must get it, you know? And I think he has that side to him, that side that can really manipulate so well and make you think that he is a a tender person himself. Hmm. But I mean, there's something about being in his presence that you you just know that he has a lot of power. So take us to that first meeting one-on-one with him. You know, it's funny looking back, there was a lot of negotiating with him. Hmm. There's a lot of like me trying to get out of it. Him saying, We'll just come over, come for a drink. Well, no, that's okay. I don't, I don't really drink. Well, okay, let's just walk up this block here. I have to run upstairs real quick. Just walk with me up here. Okay, well, I'll wait down here. No, no. And he finds a way to go back and forth with you enough so that you finally just go, okay, all right, all right. Okay, okay, I'll go upstairs, you know? So we walk upstairs. I remember I saw pictures of his wife on the wall and said, oh, your wife's really pretty. I ended up sitting down in a sofa across the room from him. He made himself a drink. I didn't have one. Um, We proceeded to talk about art, movies, books he loved. And then he legitimizes it again by sitting across the room for you, from you. And you felt he was taking you seriously at this point as an actress. Yeah. It's so, it's funny because as you're asking me the questions, I realized that there is this sort of back and forth of like safe, unsafe, safe, unsafe. And I think he plays into the safe part until he can get to the unsafe part. You looking back, I, I see how manipulative it was. What do you, what do you mean by um, the safe, unsafe part? 
there's a way he made it safe. He, there was a way he saw me being fearful and convinced me, but did it in a way that played into the things I needed to know to make it safe for me. Mm-hmm. Right? Like my wife could be home or oh, I'll show you pictures of my kids. I mean, there's sort of things that, that he knew he was throwing out there to let me know, don't worry, it's safe. I think he could sense my uneasiness for sure. And so that he would then take a step towards making me feel at ease again. And then he has this intellectual conversation with you where you feel like you're being taken seriously and that feels so good. And then he got up and he went to the bathroom. And it was around time that I felt like I was going to be leaving. Mm -hmm. And he came back out and he was wearing a robe. And I thought, this is so weird. And he said, will you give me a massage? Hmm. And I said, no, no, I'm not comfortable doing that. And he said, oh, come on, everybody does it. And then he name dropped a couple of people, one famous model in particular. And he suggested that like they all had given him the massage. Did. Yes, and that the, and that they do it all the time. What's the big deal? And what were you thinking about? Like, well, sorry, God, sorry. Keep going. I apologize. No, no, it's okay. I just thought to myself, well, it's a big deal to me. And at this point, I'm feeling like my heart's starting to beat really fast. I also felt pretty steadfast. Like, there's no way I'm going to do it. I'm not comfortable and I'm not going to do it. And then he kind of went into like a begging, like back, come on, you know, come on, like back and forth, like one more try. And I sort of got my things up to get ready to leave. And he left the room. And this time he came back a completely head to toe naked. Wow. Just naked. And he's a big guy. And he's between me and the apartment door. He said, well, if you won't give me a massage, will you at least show me your breasts? Will you lift up your shirt and show me your breasts? This is unbelievable. And then he sort of had his hands out and was doing that back back and forth dance from side to side to not let me pass. Like a shuffle, do you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. How, how someone's sort of, you know, I'm blocking the door and I won't let you pass like it was maybe a game to him or something. And, um, and so now I'm trapped, you know, that's the, that's when it really got like surreal out of body sort of, but you know, this, is this really happening? Is this going to happen to me right now? Is this the moment that it happens where like, I'm just going to leave my body, I guess. And this is going to happen. But at the same time, I thought I had that feeling of strength too. Like, I felt like there's no way you're going to get me. You know, I will get past you. And there was even a moment where I felt like, you're just a pathetic, small little boy, honestly. I mean, there was, it was sort of flip-flop between like, he could rape me, he's huge, he could definitely pin me down and I will not get past him. And there was another part of me that was like, I will get past him. I will get past him. And, um, and then I told him how, how mad I was. And how upset I was. And I, I just flat out said, I'm so disappointed that you would do this to me. 
how did you get out of the apartment? Again, there was like a, a weird negotiation. He said, I'll let you go. Like he literally, I think he even said, I will let you go if you, if you just give me a minute and let me take you to the taxi. And it, I guess I, I went for that negotiation. I don't know why, looking back, that I didn't just bolt out of the room. Mm-hmm. I let him get dressed and take me downstairs. But I know that my body was shaking and trembling. And I know that my, I know that my legs were... Um, shaking underneath me as I stepped down the stairs that that I felt like I could fall down the stairs because my knees might give out. And I got in the cab with him and I thought he was going to just put me in a cab to go home, but he got in the cab too, which was so weird and strange. And then I got out at a bar on the lower West side and I went straight into the bar And I asked the bartender to talk to me like he knew me. I said, just please start talking to me like you know me. Please just talk to me. Just please talk to me. Mm -hmm. And I could see Harvey sitting in the taxi looking at me through the window of the cab for like a good 20 minutes. I don't know why. I don't know why he stared at me through the window of the cab watching me in the bar. Like, what was I going to do in there? I don't know. But it was so creepy so he's still he's still basically with you in a sense. He's monitoring you, chasing you. Yeah. And he called me the next day. And he called me actually like several times in the following weeks. And I mean to me, it was because he knew and he was he wanted to make sure that I was like either not going to say anything or I don't know, but you know, he was covering and um I was pretty shut down at that point because I really felt scared. Like he was in this all powerful position and I was clearly never going to work again if I said anything. And the other part to it is he didn't actually touch me. So, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't sure if people would, would care if, if I, if I'm not bleeding and, you know, just wrecked, then does it really matter? Hmm. It sounds like you, you were having a debate with yourself over whether there was anything to be done about it and if there was anyone yeah. to, to tell about it. Absolutely. And, and what was the decision that you made? That there wasn't. I was just scared of him. I just was. I think that all these people must have been just as terrified this whole time. Right. I think that when people perpetrate against you, uh, I'm almost going to cry saying it, but like, I think that when people perpetrate against you, you are the one that feels the shame. And so you kind of walk around like this, in this with this private shame feeling. Catherine, what is the shame like that you're describing here? How does it, manifest in you it, I think it's a it's um a feeling of like a little bit of a feeling of like dirtiness like something's been put on you some kind of it's almost like you've been slimed <laughs> and you think that it's just you and I bet you all those other women thought it too did you recognize their stories 
when they started to tell them the, the details, the scenarios? 100%. Yes. 100%. Hmm. I imagine you had so many different feelings around this, living and working in Hollywood, where Weinstein is so present, both physically and in all the films he's involved in. Tell me about what it felt like to be so aware of how ingrained he was in the culture of the industry. I saw him years later at a premiere and I started to shake and I thought, I got to get out of here. Hmm. I got to run. And one of my girlfriends saw me and she's like, what is going on? And I was like, I have to get out of here. I have to leave. And she was like, what the hell happened to you? What's happening? And she was sort of horrified. And um, then I kind of knew like, this is not over for me. Like I'm not, I thought that this was over. It's not hmm. like his name has an enormous charge still when it's mentioned, like my body and my whole sort of mind sees up. Hmm. It's, it's like all these years later, he's still sort of right outside the window, just watching. Yeah. Catherine, do you think in some ways that, that seeing that you weren't actually alone in this, in this feeling you have, this anxiety and this power that Harvey has, that that might change your relationship with the memory of what happened all these yes, years later? I do. I think it will. I think it will change my memory. I think that, you know, I've, I already feel like I'm silently holding hands with the other women that have been through this. And... And there's a great power in that. Catherine, I really want to thank you. You're so welcome. On Tuesday morning, The New Yorker released as part of its reporting on Weinstein audio from a New York Police Department sting operation in 2015 involving the model Ambra Badawana Gutierrez. Now, yesterday was a kind of aggressive for I, me. I, I, I need to know a person to I be won't touched. do a thing, please. I swear I won't. Just sit with me. Don't embarrass me in the hotel. I'm here all the time. I sit know, with me. but I, I don't want to. Please sit there, please. Weinstein asks Gutierrez to come with him up to his hotel room. If you don't, if you embarrass me in this hotel, I'm not embarrassing stay. you. First it's all, just that I don't, I don't feel comfortable. I mean, don't have a fight with me in the hall. Please, I'm not going to do anything. I swear, my children, please come in. On everything, I'm a famous I'm, guy. I'm feeling I mean, very uncomfortable right now. Please come in now, and one minute. And if you want to leave, when the guy comes with my jacket, Why you can go. you touch my breast. Oh, please, I'm sorry. Just come on. I'm used to that. Are you used to that? Yes, come in. No, but I'm not used to that. I won't do it again. Come on. Sit here. Sit here for a minute, please. No, I don't want to. In a statement on Tuesday, a spokeswoman for Weinstein told The Times, quote, any allegations of non-consensual sex are unequivocally denied by Mr. Weinstein. He will not be available for further comments, as he is taking the time to focus on his family, on getting counseling, and rebuilding his life. Here's what else you need to know today. I was awakened by the smell of smoke, but I didn't know what it was. 
We went in our living room, looked out, saw a light flickering in the sky, and the police were knocking on our door, telling us we had to evacuate. Uh, it started for us on Monday night at 2 a.m. We had neighbors pounding on our windows, pounding on our doors, saying, you have to leave, we have to evacuate. And when I opened the front door, I saw smoke, I saw ashes. So I just screamed at my family to get in the car, get in the car, get in the car. The wildfires raging across Northern California have prompted 20,000 people to flee their homes on foot and by car as the flames overtook their towns. There were so many people evacuating. I think that was the problem. There was just thousands and thousands of people trying to leave. The fires, centered around Sonoma and Napa counties, have already killed at least 15 people and destroyed more than 2,000 buildings. As of Tuesday night, 17 large fires were still burning. A fire chief described the two biggest blazes as 0% contained. We're just grateful that we're both alive and well. Very, very grateful to the Santa Rosa Police Department. Thank you for asking. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. With no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, and an app that lets you bank anytime, anywhere, choosing Capital One is like the easiest decision in the history of decisions. That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC.